All right. Hey, folks, this is John Lawrence, and I'm coming to you with another episode of From the Head of the Bed, a podcast for the anesthesia community. Uh, I am stoked to bring you this show, and I want to give you a couple of updates before we get to the conversation on vaping-associated lung injury with Dr. April Burgoyne. I just wrapped up the 2019 teaching schedule with Cornerstone Anesthesia Conferences. Uh, Cornerstone is a CRNA-owned conference provider, and it is put on by CRNAs for CRNAs and SRNAs if you happen to have a free moment from your grad school craziness. So uh, this year, I joined them in Scottsdale, San Antonio, Sonoma, and a couple weekends ago, we were down in Houston for a very quick weekend conference. Uh, It was actually the first weekend conference that Cornerstone ran, and it was a huge success. We were down there with uh, Tracy Young, who you're going to hear from on the podcast in a couple of episodes, Uh, I think actually coming up next after this one, and then also Shane Gardner, and we've got plans to get Shane on the show at some point to talk about regional anesthesia, opioid-free anesthesia, and also personal finances, which is a big passion of his. I'm stoked to bring those guys to you in the very near future, but um, next year, I'll be joining Cornerstone in New Orleans in May, heading down to the Big Easy right on the heels of Jazz Fest, and then in September, I'm uh, so pumped to get down to my old stopping grounds of Asheville, North Carolina, probably the coolest town on the planet. Even though I'm in Portland, Maine right now, Asheville is near and dear to my heart, so I'm really pumped to get back down to Asheville um, next fall. I'm also headed out to the Idaho Association of Nurse Anesthetists meeting in April, and then over to the Iowa Association of Nurse Anesthetists meeting in October. So if you are in Idaho or Iowa, be sure to get to your state meeting next year. I would love to see you there. I absolutely love getting to meet CRNAs from around the country at these conferences. Y'all are so much fun. It cracks me up. I'm usually like a talk or two into a conference and then I get a CRNA come up to me and they're like, you're the podcast guy. You are the voice uh, that is in my car all the time. It's a little creepy, but it's super fun. Um, I'm actually still amazed that anybody listens to this thing, uh, but I'm super stoked that you do. And uh, I am recording this around the U.S. holiday of Thanksgiving, and that brings me to a point that I want to make, which is uh, simply thank you. Thank you for checking out the show, and Thanks to all of you who have reached out over the last couple of years with your um, emails and your comments, whether it's through email or on Facebook or Instagram or uh, the occasional tweet that gets tweeted out. I'm so stoked to hear from you all, to hear your stories, where you're coming from. Um, I hear from folks who aren't even in anesthesia school yet. They're, They're getting ready to go to anesthesia school and somehow they found the podcast. I hear from a lot of SRNAs from the whole range of Uh, of things in terms of topics that they want to hear about or the struggles that they're facing and how grateful they are for some of the content that we've got out there on wellness uh, for SRNAs. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time to give feedback and to shoot me a line. It's super encouraging to hear from you. And I also get a lot of great ideas for uh, where to take the show in the future. So thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks for letting me know um, what the podcast means to you. It's super fun to hear that. So Speaking of the podcast, I have so much planned um, for the near future. You will hear from Tracy Young on the business of anesthesia. He is a CEO of an anesthesia company, multi-state anesthesia company down in Louisiana. He and I taught in Houston recently together, and we were able to sit down and record a podcast on the business of anesthesia. So uh, you'll really get to hear from a true pro in terms of the business of anesthesia. I'm super stoked to bring that to you. And then I also sat down um, actually just today and recorded with uh, Cindy Farina. She is the chair of the AANA Health and Wellness Committee for um, the National Health and Wellness Committee. So we talked about CRNAs who are in the mid to late career phase of their professional lives and what challenges they face uh, that are unique to that time frame in their lives. It's so interesting. Uh, be sure to check out that um, as it comes out in the next couple of weeks. And I also have a ton of content planned, a new pharmacology series for practicing clinicians out there. I'll hit on uh, case reviews and airway management, uh, transfusion medicine, some updates on the CPC. There's so much planned that's coming down the pipe. So keep hanging in there with the podcast. Keep sending me your comments and we'll see where this thing goes. So enough on updates. Let's get on to the show. Dr. April Burgoyne 
joined us back in February for a talk on OR fires. And she, in the interim, got married and changed her name. So she was April Ritter. Now she's coming to us as Dr. April Burgoyne. And I want to give you a little bit of rundown on who she is, if this is the first time that you're meeting her. So Dr. Burgoyne got her Master's of Nursing Science and her Doctorate of Nurse Anesthesia Practice at Virginia Commonwealth University. Dr. Burgoyne is also a major in the United States Army Reserves. Prior to becoming a CRNA, she served for eight years as an active duty commissioned officer in the Army. Her experience was as a critical care registered nurse and a flight nurse with the 82nd Airborne Dustoff Medevac team. Pretty much the badass teams that are far forward and go retrieve folks in combat zones. She served two combat tours prior to transferring to the Army Reserves and then returned to school to pick up her master's and doctorate degrees in anesthesia. April recently had a case with a patient that had vaping-associated lung injury, and that spurred her interest in the topic. She gave a talk at the Maine Association of Nurse Anesthetists fall meeting this year on vaping-associated lung injury. And in the next hour, we're going to sit down and we're going to run through everything from the history of tobacco use and uh, vaping products to the pathophysiology of the types of pneumonitis that we're seeing from vaping-associated lung injury. So one bit on the terminology, the CDC is referring to this as e-volley or e-cigarette or vaping product use associated lung injury. So uh, that's a mouthful. Of course, we would expect no less from the CDC, but e-volley or vaping associated lung injury. So with that, let's get to the show. We're back in the studio today to talk about vaping related lung injury. April, thanks so much for coming back. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So we sat down a few months ago and we did uh, a hot topic called OR fires. Mm -hmm. And now we're back with this vaping related lung injury and you've got some updates. You, you have, you got married. That's right. You changed your name. I did. So if you're checking out the website, uh, April is now Dr. April Burgoyne. Yes. I get that right? Yes. That's awesome. Also known as broadcaster Burgoyne tonight. Broadcaster (laughs) Burgoyne with your headset on. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, well, I'm so stoked to talk to you about this. Um, we have chatted about vaping a little bit, and I know that you recently gave a talk at the Maine Association of Nurse Anesthetists on vaping-related lung injury that was really well-received. I heard rave reviews from it. Um, what, what got you interested in, in vaping? Now, let, let me rephrase that. <laughs> what got you interested in vaping-related lung injury as a topic? Um, thank you. So... I was asked to present at the association conference and I didn't want to present on just the same old things that we've heard over and over again. And so I had been thinking, I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm going to present on. And they asked and I decided I'd just wait and see if something came to me. And then shortly after I did have a case and it happened to be a a vaping related lung injury. And so that's kind of what sparked and this was or sparked my interest. But this was back in... Uh, very beginning of June. So it was before the topic got super hot. Right. So I kind of started fumbling through research articles and just to see what was out there. And like 29 pages of very new research, all dating back to like 2017, popped up with current articles, current research that's been going on. So I started kind of skimming through that and along with the patient I had and then looking at the new research that's when I decided, I was like, okay, I can put something together on vaping. I mean, the the, the news media exploded with vaping-related lung injuries, which I think it makes this podcast really timely and very interesting in that this has really been something that's caught the media's attention over the summer. And it's because such severe lung reactions have been popping up across the United States. Uh, so this is a relatively new topic. So I think it's really interesting that you caught this idea in early June for mm-hmm. planning to teach at a conference in September. And really like in that time frame, uh, this caught national attention, if not worldwide attention. And the CDC just put a lot of focus on this. Yes, it developed at a rapid rate. And as I was putting the presentation together, it was changing every day. And it still does. There's still new leads every day. And it's still like this mysterious thing that's happened and just um, took off over the summer. Right. Tell me a little bit about this patient that you had. So she was a 19-year-old female. 
otherwise healthy and came in with hypoxic respiratory failure, and they couldn't figure out why. She had gone to the ER a couple times, as I understand it, and was treated for pneumonia. And then she ended up back in the ER with low O2 saturation, and she was requiring oxygen. So they decided that because she had this like unique hypoxia, that was unexplained that they were going to go in. They did a CT, and then they wanted to do a bronchial alveolar lavage. Yep. Um, so I had her when they were doing the BAL. As her CRNA to mm-hmm. give her general anesthesia for her BAL. Right. And interestingly, uh, interestingly enough, it didn't come about that she had been vaping until maybe two or three visits. Oh, wow. So. Oh, that's really interesting. The story developed each time she was seen. She didn't quite admit to vaping or what type of product she was vaping or... How long were her visit uh, periods? Like, how long was she discharged and then back in the ER? We're talking like hours, couple days? A couple days. It it originated while she was away in college. And she went to, like, the school health department. And they treated her for asthma, asthma exacerbations, gave her an inhaler, new onset asthma that she had never had a problem with and I think just due to healthcare availability and cost she went with went ahead with the albuterol yeah and then when she was home for the summer she ended up worse off and having to go to the ER was treated with antibiotics and then ended up back in the ER a few days later with a higher oxygen requirement so how did her vaping use come out I think just constant questioning oh yeah was she vaping between er visits do you know yes wow as i understand it she was yeah um and you know it wasn't smoking and then a lot of times you have to be careful how you ask someone what they're using yeah because and this is a good thing to know just all around for anybody talking about vaping with children or kids um if you ask if they're vaping they might say no if you ask if they're juuling, they might say yes. If you ask if they're dabbing, they might say yes, and they're not vaping. So there's all these terms out there that a lot of us don't know. I didn't know until I started doing this wow. research. And in a young adult's mind, they they differentiate them. So no, I'm not vaping, but yes, I'm dabbing. So if you don't ask the question the way they want to hear it, they'll deny if they're actually using or not. Wow. And in a little bit, we'll talk about the different devices and how they work and how the whole thing is like different than cigarette smoking and that evolution. So we'll come back to some of those terms. Uh, but about that case, how had the trip to the OR go? Um, pretty straightforward bronch? It was. It was a pretty straightforward bronch. I think what shocked me was just the obvious epithelial damage. She had these wow. big divots in the epithelial lining and some bridging. So it almost looked like a chemical burn, like what you would imagine with a chemical burn. And I just was like, she's 19, she's healthy, first year of college, like what is going on? And then we got into discussion with the pulmonologist and he started talking about vaping and how it came around that she had been vaping and um, that her findings on CT, which were um, like a ground glass opacities, were like correlate with these vaping injuries that have been seen. And so that is why they want to do the BAL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. So uh, routine, straightforward case. Otherwise, she did well. From an Uh, anesthetic perspective. You intubated Mm -hmm. her, I would presume. Extubated fine. Mm -hmm. Those two sats were okay. Those two sats were fine. She did have like thick mucus secretions. Discharged the PACU. Any, any oh, she stayed. Yeah, she stayed inpatient, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Discharged through yeah, yeah, yeah. Went out through Peggy. Any, any kind of uh, was it THC marijuana that she was using? Did you know? Did she have any like? Did you have to use more anesthesia or different stuff than you typically would for a nineteen-year-old female? I didn't. It was THC. It yeah. came out to be. It was a mix of nicotine and THC, and. What was interesting was she had said that they were putting something, an additive, and she didn't know what it was, into the um, liquid to make it last longer. So they didn't have to pay to refill the cartridges or the liquid as often. So one of her friends or peers had this liquid that they could put in and it would make the e-liquid last longer. 
And she did admit eventually that when she inhaled that, she could feel a burn. Oh, wow. And still, I don't know what that additive was. I'm not sure if we'll ever know. I don't think she knew what it was. But it's just an example of how people are kind of adding and customizing all of these different liquids. Yeah, yeah. So she had some sort of vaping device. She had a, a liquid packet that she got commercially, but then they were doing some sort of home intervention to, to make that stuff last longer. Yes. That's very interesting. Because I know in globally as a healthcare community, we don't really have our finger on the pulse in terms of what types of products lead to what kinds of injuries. But that history can be really important. Right. And I think that goes back to a lot of this is related to counterfeit devices, counterfeit liquids. But even if you go with a commercial device and liquid, I mean, those aren't, they're not like FDA approved. No, they're not FDA approved. Chemicals or whatever. They do fall under FDA rule as a tobacco product now. Okay. Um, but they have not been FDA approved because there's no evidence there's no clinical evidence yeah, as yeah. of yet that these are healthy or that these actually help you quit smoking yeah they should be used as smoking cessation there's no evidence and that's a good point and, I, and i'm glad you rescued me from the term fda approved it's not like they approve cigarettes right like right. obviously they vehemently oppose the use of, of cigarettes and other tobacco products so uh but that's a good point that some people have turned to vaping as an alternative to smoking or a smoking cessation plan uh, but back us way up. So how did, tell us about the 10,000 foot view on the history here um, about, you know, tobacco use, cigarette use, the swing to e-cigarettes and vape products. Talk to us a little bit about that. Tobacco alone could be like a whole podcast as well. Right. So I'm going to try to start with just the basics. And okay. there's a really good graph on the CDC that shows on the x-axis it's years and then on the y-axis it's numbers so it shows the increase in smoking over the years from 1900 until about 2000. Cool and we'll put this in the show notes so folks can go to the website and check this out if you're listening. And what I would like to point out is that we started smoking in the early 1900s and then with each war the amount of people that smoke went up. There was a little decrease in the population's amount of smoking with the Great Depression, but really not that much considering. Yeah. And then it, there was a peak at the end of World War II, and that was in the 1940s, end of World War II. And then the first smoking concern or smoking cancer concern was in the 1950s, like 1956-ish, yeah. according to this graph. And then the Surgeon General didn't put out a report until 1964 that actually correlated smoking tobacco with lung cancer and the main contributor to bronchitis. So that's 64 years later, if we say we started smoking at an increasing yeah. rate in the and 1900s. Like, and, like, and, you, and by that you mean, because I know there's people out there listening and being like, oh, they were smoking hookah and <laughs> you know ganja way before that, like right. cigarettes as we know them. They, um, yeah, people have been smoking early for 1900s. as long as you look back. I mean, you can even look at like vaping. They were vaping in BC if right. they were throwing cannabis on stones and inhaling the yeah, vapors yeah, yeah. from from that. So it's just the the steep increase in the amount, the population that yeah. s- started smoking. And you can see that rise with each war. Yeah, yeah. So in 1964, they correlate it. Um, believe it or not, not till 1992 did they put an age limit of 18 on it. That's interesting in the United States, yeah. And then 1996 was when it went under the FDA rule. So that you're is you're talking about nicotine in particular, uh, tobacco, tobacco. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's where uh, vape products kind of snuck by for a while, as they're not tobacco, but they are nicotine. Interesting. So in the beginning, they weren't FDA regulated. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because they didn't have tobacco in them. They just had nicotine. They are now under FDA reg- regulatory authority. Yeah. Um, but that kind of waxes and wanes and is enforced in some areas and not in others. Right. So they asserted authority over all tobacco products. Um, and it was at that point in 1996 that they wanted to really bring this to light and start to reduce the use among kids yeah. and among youth. There was a big Supreme Court case in 2000. It was the FDA versus two major tobacco companies. Uh And that court ruled that Congress had not given the FDA authority 
over tobacco and tobacco marketing. So they went back and forth with the FDA and these big tobacco giants for quite some time. And then as a result, Congress was forced to provide explicit FDA authority to regulate tobacco. And it was in 2010 that they initiated or created the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act. And this is what, it actually banned flavored cigarettes. And this is what the final rule now today is, is from that Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act. Yeah, and that was uh, yeah an act of Congress signed by Obama 2010. That's right. Yeah. So and that's a long time, from like early 1900s right. to 64, when we realized, oh, tobacco is linked to cancer. 1964 to 2010, where we're really putting teeth into legislature. Right. And so on this graph, you can see in 64, the link starts and it decreases a little. And then it slowly, slowly starts to decrease. Um, they doubled the tax on it in the 1980s. Nicotine medication uh, over the counter, like nicotine patches and stuff, became available in the early 1990s and so on and so forth. The, the Great American Smokeout, which was, I think, 1977. Mm-hmm which is in November. It's the third Thursday of November. Very appropriate time. We're super here. close to that. <laughs> <laughs> so things like that started to take place to create awareness and yeah. to try to let people know that smoking is correlated with cancer. They, you know, they have to put the big label on the smoking on cigarette packages saying cigarette smoking may be hazardous to your health. Right, right. That came in 1964 with that initial correlation. Um, and it recently was put on vaping products. Interesting. So we see a decline of cigarette smoking use. It's not necessarily correlated with an increase of vaping, but that was going on essentially more or less out of happenstance. People were turning to vaping products more and more. In your talk that you gave, you put out a fascinating graph that looked at the correlation between marketing dollars spent on vape products and the 30-day e-cigarette use among youth. And that's, I mean, it's a direct correlation. The more money that companies spend on marketing to kids and youth, which I know Juul has had some huge lawsuits that have come out against it from specifically marketing to children and youth uh, for their products. But the more money that's been spent on marketing, the more kids are out there using this. Right. So the evidence to that more advertising makes more people smoke, basically, which seems to make sense. But if you want to put the evidence behind it, that happened in 1970 um, with President Richard Nixon. And that's when he signed the Public Health Cigarette Smoking Act, and that banned cigarette ads from airing on television and radio. And that was because they did show that direct correlation of as advertising went up, especially youth smoking went up. So there was a dramatic rise. And I think that graph you're referring to is in 2011 um, to 2014. What I want to know, April, is how we basically go from a society that smokes cigarettes a bunch. Like, where did vaping come from, and, and how did how did the use of vaping get so popular in, like, the last 10 to 15 years? And then also, we need to hone in on 2019, because 2019 has been literally off the charts in terms of, like, the reason we're doing a podcast on this is that people are getting hospitalized and they're dying from a, a short-term use of vape products. So we got to talk about that at some point. But but how to, tell us about like... So how did it originate? Yeah. There's a Chinese pharmacist in 2003 and he was a heavy smoker and his father was also a heavy smoker and died of lung cancer. So he created the first e-cigarette and it was an e-cigalite and it was for... He wanted to create this for smoking cessation because of what he had been through because he was a heavy smoker because his father died of lung cancer. He patented the device, and I believe it was called the Ruyan, meaning smoke-like in Chinese. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but it was an ultrasonic atomizer compared to today's, which are battery-powered atomizers. And these didn't hit the U.S. market until a few years later. So he patented this in 2003 in China, and then a few years later, the design all started to be enhanced. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it started here. And so 2006, 2007, we had the Sigalite, which looked like a cigarette. It was the first generation. It only was composed of a battery, an atomizer, and a flavor cartridge. And the purpose was that it would 
serve the habit of smoking. Yeah. Felt like a cigarette, looked like a cigarette, even had an LED light when you inhaled. I remember those. Yeah. So those are back in 2006, 2007. Yeah. Huh. And that's what it was created for. It had an auto draw. So when you inhale, you get the vapor, which is actually an aerosol, not a vapor, which is a mist term that everybody uses as well. Right. Um, so that's how it started. These cigalites came about. And then since then, there's been like rapid innovation to these devices. But very sneakily, like these companies weren't under the same regulations that they were under in terms of cigarettes, right? Like they could advertise. Right. So they weren't tobacco. There's no tobacco in them. It's nicotine. Um, and some people will say, well, I guess some liquids don't have nicotine. They're very hard to find. Yeah. Uh, most of them do have nicotine. And lots of it, which we'll talk about as we go through the devices more. But originally, so when these came out, there were headlines and advertisements everywhere that e-cigarettes around 95% less harmful than tobacco. Yeah. Uh, cancer research in the UK supports e-cigarettes in the fight against cancer. E-cigarettes are much safer than smoking. Um, these were like headlines yeah, in the headlines media. Yeah, headlines all over the media. So this is what was portrayed to the general yeah. public and what was advertised and how most people came about doing it back then in 2000, came about using an e-cigarette device was linked with smoking cessation. Or they could no longer smoke inside, so people would use oh, e-cigarettes to smoke yeah. inside and real cigarettes to smoke outside. Right, and you're seeing that now. I mean, it's 2019, but you're seeing that people have to specify, like you can't take e-cigarettes on airplanes. Like, Basically, where smoking's banned, now people are having to specify and also vape products or whatever. Right. But around this time, there massive amounts of marketing dollars went into this, right? Yes. So we've seen an increase in the number of dollars spent. And I have some stats that I can share with you. I don't have current ones because I couldn't find them. That information hasn't been available yeah. as of yet. But in 2011, $6.4 million were spent on advertising. And then in 2014, $115 million were spent in 2014. So and you're then, going from 6.4 million to 100 and 115, you said? That's right. In four years. That's yes. a huge jump on e-cigarettes alone. Yes, yes. On e-cigarettes. That's remarkable. And then in 2016, on cigarettes and smokeless tobacco, they spent... $9.5 billion on advertising and promotional expenses in the U.S. alone. Like with a B. B billion. B $9.5 billion, billion on e-cigarettes and smokeless tobacco. Right. So that's insane. There's also an increase in use. And yeah, that's the same course. thing that was correlated back in 2011, 2014 yeah. when they saw that increase back then. And so it's just continued to grow at this crazy rapid rate. Right. And as they're spending, people are starting to see the advertisements. I mean, they have done surveys of how often youth have seen advertising for e-cigarettes or something similar to that. And it's like 100% of Yeah, kids. it was remarkable. Uh, I'm looking at some stats that you threw out in your presentation that said in 2018, 4.9% uh, of middle school students had used e-cigarettes and close to 21% of high school students. So like one in five high school students are, are out there vaping. So if you're a parent and you got kids, like they're, you know, 5% of middle schoolers and 21% of high school kids are using these products. Like they're out there, they're super common. Uh, but bringing into focus for us in terms of 2019, I mean, this has been an incredible year uh, due to the severity of lung injuries and hospitalizations and deaths that we've seen from vaping. So the first death that I read on the CDC that was directly attributed to vaping was just in June of this year, June of 2019. Uh, so what's going on nationally with uh, these severe lung injuries? So I think that's the mystery that we're still trying to figure out as far as what's going on. They're being used a lot more because we've seen this increase in youth and adults using these e-devices um, increase in advertising and it wasn't until recent that it's come to light that they're not a healthy product that they're not for smoking yeah. cessation so up until I mean these were marketed in 2006 as that and I think that was the general population's idea was that there aren't that bad for you it's healthier than smoking it's a vapor 
just like a water vapor. Right. Um, and then they just got more innovative. And now, and then you had Juul who created, so there's four, den- four different generations. Yeah. So the first generation was the Sigalite that we talked about. And then it went to a vape pen. And then from there it went to a mods device, which is even more customizable. And it, it was created from a flashlight because it wanted more battery. They wanted more battery power, more wattage. They wanted to make more productive aerosol. Yeah. And so that was like, it's a bigger device, but there's a lot more thing, lots more that you can do as far as customizing it. And then Juul came about. So our current generation or what they call the fourth generation is similar. It's a Juul pod or a pod device. And there's other ones. It's not just Juul, but they dominate like 75 or so of the market. Wow. 75%, I think. So what's up? So tell us about what is, what's dabbing, what's vaping, what's the, what's the difference? So dabbing is with THC and there's different ways to dab. It's almost like a wax substance and that wax can be dripped onto an atomizer to create the aerosol and then it, it's a it's a very powerful inhale. Yeah. It's like souped up THC. So it's not just like, oh, I'm going to smoke weed. Now we have this like souped up. Highly concentrated. Highly concentrated THC. Mixed with like all this other stuff that's in the product. Literally like wax, like vitamin E is something that has been right. correlated in many of these case reports. Of I think that was one of the new things that came out with CDC was 30 or so bronchial lavages that they did in various states across the United States, all like one common theme in all of these things was uh, vitamin E, which right. uh, it's a thickener in these like THC oils right. so that you can use it as a little wax and put it in a gel pod and smoke it. And it is because it is a thick consistency. It also produces a larger amount of the aerosol, which people like if they're doing cloud chasing or if they have gotten into this other culture of um, it's basically a large inhale and then with your exhalation making all these crazy hypnotic looking like spirals of smoke like uh, of like this vapor smoke stuff like it's a because you get like someone was just talking about in the OR the other day they're like I have no idea like like Compared to, you know, a cigarette or a joint, like a vapor device, it really gives this huge puff of smoke, essentially vapor. And so people, yeah, it's like a whole subculture of people who blow out designs and squirrels. And like, so kids are like seeing YouTube videos of this and they're getting, you know, tons of likes. It's a cool thing to do, which garners interest and intrigue into the whole world. I mean, it, it is fascinating. If you watch one of the videos, they put it all to like different techno music and they can slow it down and speed it up and they can adjust their mods device or their pod device however they want to create more or less vapor. They can, you know, boomerang it. Like you can sit there mesmerized watching it and with some handiwork or technology from the computer, they're, it is one of those things like if you were a young kid, you'd sit there and watch it and be like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah. It's, fa- I mean, it, it is fascinating to watch. It would be super cool if it wasn't like severely damaging <laughs> to the user's lungs, right? Which right. is, which is the problem that we're really talking about. It's like vaping right. associated lung injury. So what I thought was really fascinating, um, you had shared some stats from the CDC, which we're going to put links to all this in the show notes so folks can go see. Um, they're considering 2019 to be an outbreak of this new thing that they're calling Evali, right. e-cigarettes and vape associated lung injury, I yep. think is the acronym. So, uh, but I'll just run through some of these stats and we can chat about them. So, uh, to date, there's been a little bit over 2000 Evali cases that have been, uh, diagnosed and mm-hmm. figured out solely that these, um, cases of lung injury and hospitalizations are related to e-cigarette or vaping use. There's been 39 deaths in 24 states. And again, that's in the last couple of months. Like the first recorded death was June of 2019. 39 people have died. Uh, What I think is really interesting about that is that the median age of deaths was 53, but the median age of users is 24. So it's it's generally, you know, 70% male users. So it's a young male demographic typically that are using vape pens. But people who are dying from it are a little bit older. 
Uh, 86% of these products contain THC and 64% contain nicotine. So a lot of people are, are trying to get a buzz or get high from the THC off these products. So uh, I think it's fascinating that basically we're seeing, because of all of the additives in these products, we're seeing really, really severe lung reactions from this. Right. And so they don't know exactly what is causing the lung injuries. And if you look at all the different chemicals and compounds within either the e-liquid or the dab or the black market product you're getting from who knows, they have the Dank Vapes was the most recent counterfeit product that kind of took a hit in the media, as they should. And um, that was a counterfeit product that had the high vitamin E acetate. And so you have them suspended in propylene glycol or glycerol, uh, which are FDA approved for ingestion, not inhalation. Right, big difference. So that's a big difference. And there's uh, carbonyls that are broken down into aldehydes and formaldehydes, which we know are toxic to the lungs, formaldehydes. There's metals in the atomizers, different metals that are caustic to our lungs. And then there's flavorings that they add to it as well. And that's just what we know. So the ones we don't know are about the THC, CBD oils, any of these, like ha- when they're making the dabs. Yeah. If that's a term, I don't know. The dabs. <laughs> the, the dabs. <laughs> um, I'm talking to broadcaster Burgoyne here. I mean. <laughs> the dabs. <laughs> talking about the dabs. That's awesome. So there's so there's lots of different devices. There's lots of different products that are out there for use. Uh, and you took a little field trip to learn about some of this. Oh, I did. So I want to catch the story. You went to a vape shop as part of your research yes, or research. your talk that you gave. Uh, tell me about that trip. Well, it was interesting. It wasn't that now, bad. No, wait. You went like, if I'm not mistaken, let me set this up. You you were at the Miena conference, mm-hmm. the main association of nurse anesthetists conference. You're like, you're like business casual. Right. Then you went to this vape shop. So like you rolled in and you did not look like their typical clientele. Right. So I went before the day before I presented. So I okay. went to the conference on Saturday. I presented on Sunday. So Saturday on my way home, I decided, you know, it's Saturday afternoon and I was going by a local vape shop and I was like, I'm just going to stop in because I feel like if I'm presenting on the topic, I should have a little more street, street cred. So Beyond talking about the devs. Right. <laughs> so... It honestly wasn't that bad. I went in, and as much as I felt like a, a poser, they probably were like, what is she doing here? They kind of gave me that look like, uh, are you in the right spot? How can we help you? Ma'am. Ma'am. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm just looking around. I'm just curious about your products. And uh, they said, okay, well, can I see your ID? Let's just get that out of the way. So they did ID me right away. Okay. Um, because, you know, I look younger than 18. That's right. So they ID'd me and then they were very nice, but the whole experience was interesting in the sense that the employees working, they wore uh, mod devices around their neck on a lanyard. Yep. And so they were using that a lot to kind of educate me. I told them that I didn't know that much about it, that I had heard people were using different um, products for sleep or anxiety or um for nicotine rather than smoking i kind of just went in yeah. playing like hey I, I don't know much about this but i'm curious like you went in as an interested as a curious consumer curious like consumer. you didn't say hey i'm i'm dropping this talk tomorrow no. busting vaping so what's up no nope. curious consumer. so you got you got like the the unfiltered pitch right and there's like an overwhelming amount of products and uh, paraphernalia that they have in there so when you walk in it is it's almost intimidating because you're like oh there's all this stuff I don't know anything about it yeah um and they were they were nice to break it down and talk to me about the different devices and basically they break it down uh to what your goal is like what you want to get out of it yeah. is it a nicotine fix do you want cbd do you want you know all these different things that they're trying to sell and then what your price point is so they said well if you were to buy a device and some product today what what do you want to spend because there's range from very low to like $10 to hundreds of dollars. Wow. And um, then it's pretty much the flavors are selling. Yeah. So from there, they're like, okay, this is what you want, and here are your flavors. Uh, There's lemon cake, there's frosted watermelon, granddaddy purple, chocolate mint, mango, like anything you can think of. I mean, you did pick up some street cred (laughs) going going in your talk with that kind of street knowledge. See, yeah. Granddaddy purple. 
paid off and I didn't buy anything. All right. But I thought about buying clear. something just to pass it around. Nice. <laughs> it's like, this is the device. Um, the other thing that was really interesting about it is I asked if they could tell me what was in it. I was yeah. curious. You know, I'm like, well, what is it suspended in? And he, the ingredients weren't listed yeah. on the bottles or the packaging. And he said he wasn't really sure, but it's probably just vegetable glycerin. Just kind of like, like something that's very non-toxic, not harmful. Kinda we all know off. about this. Right. Yeah. And again, it's... Vesh, a, vegetable sound they sound healthy. I mean, like <laughs> veggie tails and stuff. Like, they're not, that's not going to be yeah, harmful. Healthy. Just coat your lungs in it. It's going to be great. Yeah, just... Superheated, aerosolized vegetable oil. Right. It's kind of like that's grease. Not, that's not really that's a grease, vapor. right? Yeah. It's like a grease that's, fire in yeah. your lungs. That, there you go. That's why you get the burn look. <laughs> The chemical burns. Oh my gosh! So, uh, so you didn't buy anything, but it sounds like you learned a fair bit. I did. I learned a yeah. bit. Yeah. And, and it was interesting to see. I, I mean, it's definitely marketed in a unique way. Yeah. Kind of something for everyone. They can find. They want to know what you're looking for, what you're willing to spend. Kind of get to know you, and then gear you in the right direction. I guess. Wow! Wow! So let's switch gears and kind of look towards. Uh, wrapping out this topic, let's talk a minute about the pathophysiology of basically this uh, aerosolized, superheated vegetable oil coating your lungs, right. right? So the reason that this is so severe, I, I think this is one of, the, one of the themes of a conversation on vaping is that, you know, you look at smokers, you might die from lung cancer 20, 30, 40 years into smoking, but People are being hospitalized and dying of vape-related lung injury within a couple weeks of using it or within a couple months of using it, depending on how much they're vaping, how concentrated the chemical is, maybe contaminants that are in the chemical. This is, in a, this is a short-term use leading to a very, very severe ARDS-like pneumonitis. So talk to us about some of the pathophysiology related to it. Well, it's multifactorial, too, because there's... They, when they look at these cases, there's not too many things that are coexisting with each other. So yeah. you have people who have smoked for a very long time that switch to use this as smoking cessation are strictly using nicotine or nicotine liquids that are bought at Walmart and Walgreens, not counterfeit, not at the street, and they've died. And then you have people who have bought counterfeit, who have done THC and nicotine and maybe put additives in. And they were really healthy 17, 18, 19 year olds and they died or need a double lung transplant, which was the in the news yesterday. Wow. Um, it's not just THC. It's not nicotine. It's not the flavored liquid with no nicotine. We don't we don't know what it is. Yeah. So from a pathophysiology standpoint, as these cases started coming about, they were using differential diagnoses. They didn't know right away that they were seeing vaping-related injuries. Maybe people didn't say they were vaping. They thought that was harmless, too. So if right. they weren't directly asked, maybe they failed to mention it. So that led to them basically saying, man, all these people are being hospitalized. What's going on? Well, let's do a bronchoalveolar lavage. Let's, I, before that, let's get a chest x-ray, get a CT so there were some patterns that showed up, right? Well, right. I think one one thing the CDC is really encouraging people to acute uh, respiratory distress in the ER. Uh, they say one of the first things that you should screen for is uh, community acquired pneumonia, right? Like, right. like uh, uh, get a culture, see what's going on, and like early antibiotics are a hallmark treatment for pneumonia, a lung infection. But these vape related lung injuries are not classically an infectious process, no. right? It's it's a pneumonitis. It's an, so, and it's without it's an, an inflammatory response that specifically does not have an infection related with it. Correct. So it presents similar to an infection. Yeah. And with flu season coming up, that's like an important differentiation too for providers. But So it presents very similar, but it does not have an infectious process. And we can post the CDC. Um, Diagnostic criteria. Yes. Yeah, which is, e which is an evolving set of criteria really i mean they they've they've not had enough cases to say definitively like boom this is how you get evali right right and it's, there's like a caveat like and provider discrepancy or provider assessment basically. yeah yeah so. for sure so um do you want to say anything more about the types of pneumonitis or the kinds of 
pathological responses um, that we're seeing in terms of the, the, you know, characterizing the lung injury is what I'm getting at. Yes, I think there's a couple worth discussing. Um, bronchiolitis obliterans uh-huh. is also known as popcorn lung. That's the street term. <laughs> but it got that. I mean, since we're on the topic of all your street topic. cred. Um, since, since it, hold on, it got that name. Um, it was like the slang after people in a popcorn factory. Did you go to a popcorn factory? I didn't. No, but you know that anyway. But yeah. Okay. I know it. You, you can look it up. <laughs> so there is a, sorry. Um, so there is a certain additive called diacetyl, and that was an additive in popcorn flavoring. And so people who were working in popcorn factories, the employees who were around this diacetyl flavoring started coming down with these lung injuries and had like hypertrophy of the smooth muscles and the bronchioles, um, just inflammation throughout, accumulation of mucus, and then they had bronchial scarring with it. And they realized that it was one of this flavoring, this ingredient, diacetyl, in the popcorn factory. And so now they use, you know, PPE. Um, in the factories to prevent this. Personal protective equipment, like they wear masks and stuff to protect their lungs. Right. Um, and so it was found that over 76% of sweet flavor flavorings, ends flavors, electronic nicotine device systems, I don't think I've said that yet. Okay. That's another term for these vaping or e-cigarettes. Um, in 76% of the sweet flavorings, they found diacetyl. Wow. And then even more so, 89% of them, they found diacetyl or something similar. So like a yeah. relative of diacetyl that could also be causing this um, bronchiolitis obliterans. So that was a differential diagnosis, especially in the beginning of all this. They were seeing yeah. things that were similar to this previous lung injury that they noticed with these popcorn factory yeah. workers. And then another one is known as wet lung. It's hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And the symptoms to that can be acute, subacute, chronic. And so there's a uh, different severity in it. But it definitely comes across as flu-like symptoms, chills, fever, muscle and joint pain, headache. Um, you'll see your common like shortness of breath, rails, coughing, weight loss, fatigue, fibrosis of the lungs. And this is just varying symptoms. And they categorize hypersensitivity, pneumonitis, based on exam, on bronchial exam, basically. Bronchoscopy. Bronchoscopy. Yeah, yeah. So let's shift gears to treatment phase. I mean, people have a range of reactions from what looks like an asthma exacerbation to full-on, like, acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS-style respiratory insufficiency progressing to respiratory failure. Bronchial hemorrhage. like Ventilator-dependent. Uh, to death. I mean, right. these are these are severe, severe reactions. What have the effective treatments been? So basically, all treatments have ended up with steroids. The patient goes on steroids ultimately, yeah, and that's the definitive treatment. And then they're weaned off of it. So again, it's not an infection process. So they're not on antibiotics per se, but they are usually treated with antibiotics in the beginning just to rule out infectious process. Treating them with like antibiotics that would be effective against common strains of pneumonia. Right. Otherwise, it's just clinical management, uh, treat the symptoms, steroids, and wean from there. Supportive care. Yeah. Yeah. Critical care, ventilators if you need it, that kind of stuff. But IV run of uh, steroids has been a hallmark theme in managing these. IV or oral, depending yeah, on the severity. Wean. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what should anesthesia providers keep in mind when they are, you know, maybe it's a known vape related lung injury, or maybe they just have a patient, uh, that it, maybe that hasn't come out in their history, or they're taking a patient back who's in some sort of, uh, respiratory distress for a bronch or something like that. So what should, what should we keep in mind? They need to keep in mind that it doesn't always present an acute distress Mm -hmm. to ask the questions, use some of the terms seek it out in your uh, pre-evaluation and then know the criteria so you can treat the symptoms as well so know the criteria that the cdc is putting out and updating yeah which will post um and not as though we're going to treat it per se as a the anesthesia provider but be on the lookout for it because they could 
have very similar presentation as someone with any other lung injury, whether it's COPD, asthma, a chemical burn, inhalation injury. You really don't know what you're going to get because you don't know the severity of the illness at the at that time usually. Yep. Um so it really comes down to treating the symptoms. That makes sense. So we've talked about the diagnostic criteria the CDC has put out um a couple of times and you mentioned that. So uh, we can put the link in the show notes, but it's it's pretty vague. It's pretty pretty general. Uh, but uh I think it's worth mentioning. So what what is that criteria for right. eVolley? So it's basically a criteria of exclusion. Uh it is if you are using an e-cigarette or some type of vaping device or dabbing device. Uh, you have a pulmonary infiltrate, such as opacities on plain films or ground glass opacities, and then the absence of any infection. So if you don't have an infectious process or any other reason that you would attribute to the lung injury, then they will correlate it with the vaping use. So nothing nothing super specific in that. I mean, basically, history of use, pulmonary infiltrate, no infection, and no other cause. Right. No plausible causes. Yeah. Otherwise. Yeah. Great. Before they came up with the term e-valley, which is a new term of, of, of October, they just said vaping-associated pulmonary injury, and it, they looked at it as lipoid pneumonia, and they were doing BAL samples to look at lipid-laden macrophages. And so that's what they were finding with the e-acetate, is basically it was like oil in your lungs, and these lipid Related macrophages was confirming the presence of these vitamin E acetate, e acetate. Yeah, which is common in 30 some odd bronchial lavages from across the United States. Right. One of the common themes. So that's pretty new information um, out here at the end of October, early November from the CDC. So it, it is an evolving crisis. It's an evolving outbreak. But April, where do you see this going? We've talked a lot about the severity of 2019 in terms of the epidemiology of this, but also we talked a lot about industry, marketing, regulation, FDA involvement. The CDC is obviously all over this. So we're closing out 2019. What's the next six months, next couple of years look like in your, if you had a crystal ball, <laughs> where would you say it's going to go? I think it's just the beginning. Honestly, I think we're comparing something to cigarettes, which we know are really bad. So if we're trying to get e-devices and e-liquids off the market, but we don't have cigarettes off the market, and that's what we're comparing to. I don't have much hope in that sense that they're going to be completely banned. Uh, I think they're still being pushed as smoking cessation, and I think um, the latest as of today was that there's no comment by the FDA saying when they're going to put regulations, further regulations or restrictions like banning the flavoring and the sale of certain devices, they're not putting that information out. They haven't said that they're going to do that. They're still looking into it and allowing time for these big companies to provide them evidence or try to prove that they're not as harmful as... And we know that marketing dollars, like that's not slowing down anytime soon. I mean, you said what... uh, 2016, $9.5 billion was spent on this industry, that and smokeless tobacco. Like, that's incredible. Right. And they com- they combined. So big tobacco giants bought out a lot of these e-cigarette yeah. companies. So, like, Juul was bought out by Philip Morris, which is Marlboro, basically. Yeah. They spent almost $13 billion for 35% stake. So even if that falls, now we have this whole new generation addicted to nicotine. And so if they take all of that off the market and they say, okay, no more e-devices, no more e-liquids, this is illegal, you can't sell them, all these people now that are addicted to the nicotine are going to go back to cigarettes. Mm. And the same companies are going to benefit from that retail as well. So you have this like cyclical fad now that we saw with the rise and fall of tobacco, and now it's like the promise and the peril of uh, e-cigarettes. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I think that that's a great way to put it. Um, there's really, you know, I'm thinking about all of the listeners out there who may be parents of kids, uh, or neighbors and friends of people who use vaping pens. What would you say to them? What would be some hallmarks? I mean, there's no, there's no, really, there's no safe way to do this, right? There's no brand, there's no device, there's no flavor packet that has been deemed, 
like this isn't going to put you in the hospital. No, I mean, I, obviously like millions of people are using this and not millions of people are being hospitalized. But I think, I think the scary thing is about it. If you look at the data, if you look at the case reports of people who have been hospitalized and you look at, and of that subset, you look at the people who go on to die from this, it's not like they, they've been using for a really long time or they're just vaping all the time. Like these are, it's kind of just this like random draw in terms of who's going to end up with a really, really severe pneumonitis and be hospitalized and maybe die. Yeah, it's scary. There's really no telling like who is going to be affected more or less. And I think to, as far as talking to parents of youth and how to get the message out, I personally, obviously we need, there's a public health crisis and people are dying and that is the big overall picture. But I also think thinking about nicotine and the effects that nicotine have on our youth, on the developing brain, on all, all of the different systems and that it's pretty much a gateway drug. So if you read back on a lot of the research and they often say that nicotine's a gateway drug. Once you are addicted to cigarettes and nicotine, then you're gonna try THC and then you're gonna start dabbing and then who knows what else you're gonna start putting in these customizable devices. So I think the bigger picture is talking about nicotine and how bad that is as well. So it's not just the inhalation injuries and it's not just that people I shouldn't say just, but it's not that people are dying. It's that there's this whole new generation that are going to be addicted to nicotine. And then regardless if the sales decrease or, or they stop with the flavor. So that's one of the things that you'll see. A lot of um, states have banned flavors. Mm-hmm. Massachusetts being one of the stricter bans, they have like a four-month moratorium yeah. on all sales. So they have stopped all sales of any device until until further research has right. been developed. Um, so we may see that and we're seeing that state to state or in different cities, but it is not a, f- a federal band yet. However, with cigarettes, it did seem to work. So we're kind of following the same trends that we saw with tobacco. So they banned um, flavored cigarettes and then we saw a little downfall and so each little step as far as making these movements and getting information out there to everyone I think will help but it's just we don't really know what the future is going to hold as far as the nicotine addiction and what that's going to do to the current generation yeah yeah well like you said it sounds like we're just getting started with this yeah yeah unfortunately yeah So providers, heads up. Hopefully this has been helpful to you. And parents, if you're out there, um, have a conversation with your kids or with your kids' friends. It is, I think, one of the amazing things. I think it wasn't really until I got into anesthesia that I started seeing lungs more often, like visualizing them, whether through uh, the chest and looking at the outside of the lungs and you can see the you know, speckled disease states from lungs that are ate up with cancer or just uh, blackened through smoking. Uh, or from the inside, when you when you see a lung that has actually been burned, uh, you know, through these pneumonitis reactions, it can be pretty remarkable to think about, um, you know, it's a choice, right? It's a choice on how you want to move forward in your world, uh, in your own life, and whether or not you want to take care of that set of lungs that you got. So right. um, I'm not a parent. If you're a parent out there, good luck with that conversation. <laughs> But uh, April Burgoyne, anything else that you want to say about vaping-related lung injury or this topic? Not really as far as like vaping-related lung injury specifically, but I think it's important to remember that technology is paradoxical. So we're seeing like these new innovative devices and new technologies, new medications, and we're like a technology-crazed world. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's all good for you. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to solve all the problems. It's constantly creating new problems as well. So I would just encourage people to question things, ask questions, remember risk first benefit. If these things are new, we don't necessarily have research on them. We don't know the long-term effects. So we're seeing acute effects now on ENDS devices, vaping, and we don't know what that's going to do in 30 years. Yeah. So we don't, we don't have that information. And I think it's just a vicious cycle and it will continue to challenge all of us, especially as we get more sophisticated and more innovative and we have all these like amplified technologies at our fingertips. 
Yeah, that's a good word. You know, while you were saying that, just because it's new and it's and we're technology crazed, doesn't mean it's good. You think about it, it's about like the addiction to cell phones and screen time and like what that's done to human interaction. It's fascinating. And then, yeah, I mean, the the vaping products themselves, they seem cool. And I think the huge misnomer is that it's a vapor, right? It's right, right there in the word. Oh, you're, well, you're vaping, so that must be better than, you know, I don't smoke, I vape. Right. Well, you're, it's, not, it's not a vapor. It's an aerosolized, oil-based compound that your alveoli don't know what to do with. Yeah, they make it attractive. And I think that's why there's been such, they've come down so hard on marketing and advertising to youth. Yeah, yeah. Well, April, thank you so much for uh, coming back to the podcast. Uh, I can't wait to find out what our next topic is going to be <laughs> down the road. I hope you come back. It's always a pleasure. And and thanks for kind of capturing a, a little snapshot of e-volley and vaping-related lung injury and, and bringing that to the listeners. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. And we could go on all night about this. So it's one of those things that I feel like we did a good job with snapshots, but there's definitely more information. And I mean, if you Google it every day, there's new articles each day, new information out there. So I would say, let's keep learning. Yeah, keep the conversation going. We definitely went from the OR to the CDC to the vape shop uh, <laughs> and back again. So um, to, the, to the today's headlines. So we'll definitely keep the conversation going. But uh, Broadcaster Burgoyne, thank you so much. Thank you.